Welcome to our Wednesday evening study. We are beginning a new study this evening. And so if you have your Bibles, I would ask you to turn um, to Acts chapter 2. Now, as we uh, think about what it means to be the church, uh, the people of God in this world, uh, we recognize that God is at work uh, and that his work in the world is to Uh, glorify himself through the salvation of sinners, but we recognize that he has left us here. When he saves us, he doesn't immediately take us uh, to heaven to dwell with him, but he leaves us here on earth, and he has given us a mission while we are here, Uh, and so we call this the Great Commission. We find it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, in that passage, uh, the mission that Christ has given to his church on the earth is to go to make disciples, to baptize them, and then to teach them. So there are four verbs there, go, make, baptize, and teach. And so as we go about that, that we go to the nations, but then the very next step of that is to make disciples. And so what I want to address over the course of the next seven weeks or so is uh, how do we know if someone has become a disciple? Uh, It's important that we be able to recognize that a conversion has happened, that someone has experienced salvation? Are there signs that we can recognize to know that someone has become a believer? Because we are to make disciples and then we are to baptize them and to teach them. Uh, And so we need to know before we baptize them, are they a believer? Have they actually experienced the grace of God in their heart uh, and come to faith in Christ? And, And if they have, it would be nice for us to be able to know this, not only so that we know when to baptize someone, but that we can give people assurance, right? People have a lot of doubts. Even those who have come to faith sometimes doubt uh, and question their salvation. So it would be uh, well for us to be able to recognize the signs that someone has come to faith so that we can properly uh, give assurance where it is needed, both uh, to the individual who has come to faith, uh, to uh, a parent, with a child, questioning has that child come to faith to have that assurance, uh, to the, the Christian who is witnessing to a neighbor, a co-worker, a, a friend, uh, and to the church as we uh, bring people who have come to faith and bring them to the waters of baptism to have assurance that uh, we are baptizing a disciple. We have to recognize, though, that conversion doesn't always happen the same way. It doesn't occur exactly the same way in everyone's lives. In the book of Acts, in fact, we see uh, multiple uh, experiences of conversion. In Acts chapter uh, 8, we have the uh, account of the Ethiopian uh, who is uh, brought to faith as he is traveling uh, in his chariot. And uh, the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and and sent him there to go uh, explain the scriptures to this Ethiopian eunuch who is traveling. And so if you'll remember that account, uh, what does his salvation look like? What well, looks like a man reading his Bible, 
Someone comes, explains to him what he is reading. They have a conversation one-on-one -on -one between the two of them. He professes faith and is baptized. So here's an experience of salvation that is a one-on-one -on -one witnessing sort of conversation that happens. But in Acts chapter 10, uh, we see a completely different experience. So we have the account of uh, Cornelius, uh, this man who is a Gentile, uh, just like the Ethiopian, and Peter uh, is sent for, and he goes to Cornelius's home, and Cornelius, we are told, um, gathered together. Uh, it says that he had called together his relatives and close friends. So he has his family, he has his close friends, they're all gathered there in his household, and Peter speaks and explains the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. The Holy Spirit falls on them, uh, and they are saved. And so here we have like a small group in someone's home uh, where the gospel is being explained. Uh, so a different sort of circumstance. In Acts chapter 2, we have a completely different circumstance. We have the, the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. The disciples are there. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They begin to proclaim uh, the, the wonderful works of God, and a crowd gathers and begins to question what is going on. And so Peter stands up and preaches to this crowd. And after he does so, Many people get saved. Uh, we read in verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So this is like a mass event, like a, you know, a Billy Graham crusade kind of thing. This is Peter preaching to this massive crowd in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people get saved. So completely different sets of circumstances in those three events under which people came to faith. We can also recognize that when someone comes to faith, it's going to be different depending on uh, their age, their background, uh, their experience. It's going to be different, uh, for instance, for a young child who comes to faith. Consider uh, the case of Timothy. Uh, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul tells Timothy uh, that he is to remember that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. And it was his mother and his grandmother who raised him and explained the gospel to him and read the Scriptures with him. His experience of salvation, I'm sure, was vastly different than, for instance, uh, a convicted felon, such as Onesimus, uh, who we read about in the, in the book of Philemon. If you'll remember, this is a, a runaway slave who, from all likelihood, it appears he was arrested and put in prison, happened to be put in the same prison with the Apostle Paul. He hears the gospel from Paul. Uh, he gets saved. He becomes uh, a son to Paul in prison. And Paul says... Uh, when he writes his letter back to Onesimus' uh, owner, he says to him, uh, he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. And then in verse 12, he says, I am sending him back to you. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. So you can imagine when Timothy comes to faith as a young child raised in a Christian home, his experience of salvation, of repentance, looks quite different than it does for Onesimus, who now is sent back to his previous owner and has to repent for the sins that he committed, the offenses he committed. It's going to be a, a completely different sort of experience. So it's 
important that we begin to recognize what are the signs that someone has actually come to faith uh, and to recognize uh, what these signs are. We need to be familiar with them so that we can recognize them uh, because we need to avoid a couple of errors that we might fall into. And one which is rampant in our day is to give false assurance of salvation. Uh, to tell someone they're saved simply because they prayed a prayer or because they had some sort of experience uh, and they have not actually experienced regeneration, have not repented of their sins. Uh, Peter Masters, who is the pastor at the London Tabernacle, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Spurgeon uh, was the pastor, uh, he wrote and said this. He says, conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit and the Lord's servant must never preempt the Spirit's work by attempting to rush to clinch the matter. And I have seen that done many, many times where, where in our attempt to get someone saved, we, we rush the matter. We just want them to say the prayer and then, we, okay, you're in, you're saved. And they actually have not experienced true conversion. Uh, the other thing that we want to avoid is if someone actually has gotten saved, we don't want to unsettle them by uh, questioning their, their conversion too much, right? We don't want to be too stringent about the matter. We don't want to cause them to struggle with doubt and disbelief. We want to be able to give assurance where it is needed, uh, but also to caution against easy believism uh, and to diligently seek uh, regenerate church membership. Our confession of faith uh, in chapter 18 talks about uh, the assurance of grace and salvation. And it says this in paragraph one, although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as, are tru as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So we can have assurance of salvation in this life. Uh, and so that is our, our goal here is to begin to understand what are the signs that someone truly has come to faith so that we can give them assurance uh, where it is needed. So with that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 uh, and the response to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We won't read his sermon, but we will read the response in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37 and going through the end of the chapter. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple 
and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So over the course of the next seven weeks, we're going to pick out uh, seven signs of salvation that we can see in this passage and discuss them. Uh, there could be other ones. There are other passages we could look at, such as First John that talks about the love we have for God and for one another being a, a sign of our salvation, and we will discuss that uh, at some point. But this evening, we will begin with the first one, which we find uh, right here in verse 36, or in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a deep wound, a conviction of their sin and of their offense against a holy God. And that came about because the gospel was proclaimed to them. Uh, that, that conviction of sin follows the preaching of the word. So we see in Romans chapter 10 where Paul says, how are they to believe unless someone preaches to them? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the gospel must be proclaimed. And when it is, uh, people can respond in various ways. And this is one of the ways they can respond is with this cut to the heart, this conviction of their sin. Now, this does not mean that someone who hears the gospel proclaimed and feels a conviction of sin uh, suddenly in that moment uh, has a full understanding of the doctrine of total depravity. They're not going to in that moment. But what they are going uh, to know in that moment is that they are a sinner who has offended a holy God. Uh, they're not going to understand the fullness of what it means that God is holy. They're not going to understand the doctrine of the holiness of God in full, but they are going to understand that he is God, that they have offended him by their sin against him, their violation of his law, and that they stand in need of salvation, unable to save themselves. I mean, that's the basic conviction of sin. Uh, and so, any testimony of salvation that leaves out the idea of sin and conviction uh, it is to be questioned. Uh, a testimony that does not include a confession of sin and repentance from that sin is not genuine. In fact, we could see this quite often in celebrity testimonies, right? A lot of celebrities, we, we hear that they've gotten saved, uh, and then you hear their testimony and you think, well, there was, there was no sin mentioned. There was no repentance. I, I remember a few years ago, one celebrity, this was big news that he had gotten saved. And then uh, shortly after that, there was an interview with him. And the interviewer had the audacity to ask about repentance. And the response was, well, I've never done anything I need to repent of. Well, obviously, uh, the, the profession of faith was not genuine if he had not recognized his need to repent to God. So uh, we have to be certain that there actually has been a conviction of sin and repentance towards God. Uh, you know, simply feeling uh, empty on the inside and then having some experience that made me feel full is not the same thing as being convicted of my sin. This is one that we saw a lot when we lived in Boston. Getting sober is a good thing but that doesn't necessarily equate to salvation. We see a lot of people in Boston, we asked them, they'd say they were Christian, you asked them for their testimony, and they'd start talking about how they got sober and went to AA. 
there would be nothing there about sin, conviction, repentance. It was just they got sober, and so that meant they were saved. Uh, so uh, we have to be clear about what it means to be convicted of our sins. Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter, second letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 7, uh, he addresses this issue. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's a worldly sorrow over sin that is not actually uh, the right type of sorrow over sin. It's a sorrow that uh, regrets the consequences of sin, the punishment for sin, regrets getting caught in whatever they did, uh, but is not actually brokenhearted over their sin. Godly sorrow uh, is a brokenheartedness over sin that leads to repentance, which is uh, not to be regretted, or in some translations, not to be repented of. It's repentance that you don't turn away from. Right? If, we, if repentance, which we'll get to in a moment, is turning away from sin and towards God, uh, it, the genuine repentance would not be something that you later regret or turn back from. And, and we can see this sort of uh, brokenheartedness over sin in uh, David's psalm that he wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. Now, he was caught, right? The, the, the prophet had to come and convict him of his sin, point out that he was the sinner. But when he, when he did confess his sin, it wasn't just that he had gotten caught. It wasn't just the consequences of it. I mean, listen to some of the things he wrote here in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, that's an amazing statement. He had committed adultery and then had the woman's husband murdered. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned. He, he recognized his sin and offense against God, against a holy God, to be so uh, incredible that any other offense against a human paled in comparison. He says this in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So when we come under conviction of sin, we experience this sort of brokenheartedness over our sin and our offense against God, not simply that uh, we feel better about ourselves now or uh, something of that nature. In Acts chapter 7, interestingly, we see this uh, same phrase, cut to the heart, uh, used a second time. In this case, Stephen uh, has been preaching, again, to a crowd which includes a lot of Pharisees and Jewish leaders. And, and after he preaches his sermon to them, Acts chapter 7 and verse 54 says, And when they heard these things, same thing when Peter preached, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Well, here it says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. So here's the same exact words. Like they felt the conviction. They recognized they had sinned against the holy God. But their response was quite different than the response in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, their response was, what shall we do? Right? What, what, are, what shall we do? We felt this conviction. But in Acts chapter 7, their response was anger. Their response was to gnash their teeth and then to stone the messenger to death. Uh, they recognized their sin. They were cut to the heart about it. But instead of being brokenhearted over it, they were angry about it. Their desire was to make that conviction go away by whatever means necessary. Uh, it was a worldly sorrow. It was more than that even. It was an open rebellion against God that resulted in their anger being taken out on Stephen, who was the messenger who proclaimed the gospel to them. Uh, so you can see various responses that people might have uh, to the preaching of the word. World, word. They could have worldly sorrow, uh, where they feel some remorse or some sense of sorrow, but not really over their sin so much as uh, how you're making them feel in that moment or something of that nature, but it doesn't lead to repentance. They could have an angry response like this crowd did in Acts chapter 7, or they could have a response of godly sorrow leading to repentance as the crowd did here in Acts chapter 2. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter's answer to them is, in verse 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So we're going to leave off the discussion of baptism till next week, but address this idea of repentance. This is the response to the conviction of sin. We are to repent of our sin. What is it to repent? Repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart. It's a change of our affections. We no longer love our sin, uh, but we're hating our sin. We're, we're brokenhearted over our sin. We're no longer ignoring or dreading, fearing in a bad way or angry towards God, but rather we're loving towards God. So you can see our affections shift from our sin to God. We feel brokenhearted over our sin against him, uh, and our heart changes a change of behavior follows this sort of repentance, right? Uh, it, we call this sanctification, but sanctification is something that happens uh, over time. Uh, some change in behavior will happen immediately at times. We think about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Uh, at the end of that story, what does Jesus say to her? Go and sin no more, right? Stop the sin right now. Repent of it. The behavior changes immediately. Sometimes the behavior changes over the course of time. Uh, we can think about uh, some things that the Apostle Paul has written. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 18, he says, But we all with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we're being transformed over time. We're being sanctified. We're learning to put sin to death in our lives. In chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So sanctification is something that happens gradually over the course of our lives. There may be some immediate sins when we are convicted of our sins and we repent. Some behavior may change immediately, but there are other behaviors that are ingrained, deep patterns of behavior, things we don't even know are sin at that point, and and later we recognize they are. You think about the Apostle Paul, when he Over the course of his career, if you look chronologically at the things he says about himself, it's interesting that early in his ministry, uh, he calls himself the least of the apostles. By the end of his ministry, he's calling himself the chief of all sinners. The further he matured and grew in the Christian life, the more he recognized the sin in his life that he needed to repent of. So we shouldn't expect someone who is newly convicted of sin and repenting to repent of every single sin in their life, to even know every single sin in their life. This is something they will learn over time uh, and repent of over time. And this is a process that is never completed in this life. Uh, We do not attain perfection. In Romans chapter 7, Uh, Verse 18, Paul writes and says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. And in verse 23, he says, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And so uh, Paul's talking about this sin nature that dwells in us even as Christians and that the ongoing battle against sin uh, throughout the course of our lives. In Philippians uh, chapter 4, sorry, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes and says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So Paul's saying, I haven't attained, I haven't achieved perfection in this life, but I'm pressing towards that goal, towards the goal of sanctification, waiting for that moment when he will be glorified. And so really the question that we need to ask is, uh, when someone professes faith, and says that they have repented, we don't need to ask, have they stopped sinning entirely? Rather, uh, we need to ask, is there a visible hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are are they visibly wanting uh, to to repent of their sin? Are they wanting uh, to learn how to live as a Christian and not sin? Or are they simply excusing their sin? making excuses for it, saying, oh, that's not that bad, right? So we can tell it's the matter of the posture of the heart towards their sin. Other things that we need to know about this idea of repentance is that this is the work of God. Uh, It is not the work of man. Paul tells Timothy in his second letter to Timothy uh, that as he's dealing with false teachers and false believers in the church, uh, that he is to correct them. Uh, And he says that he is to correct them in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. 
Repentance is a gift that God grants to us and that he works in our heart by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But as we see, uh, and as we have said, that gift of repentance uh, works both in our heart and in our actions. And in Isaiah chapter 1, actually Isaiah addresses uh, this issue, and he says in verse 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. So there's a matter of the heart, cleansing yourself, cleansing your heart, your affections, and then ceasing to do the evil and learning to do good. Uh, And then he gives a list of things, seeking justice, rebuking oppressors, defending the fatherless, pleading for the widow, uh, learning to act, live righteously, and to put away sinful behavior. So there's a change both in the affections of the heart and in the outward behavior. In Ezekiel, uh, which his language is picked up uh, in the New Testament as well, but in uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel describes uh, what actually happens at the moment of regeneration uh, when he talks about getting a new heart and a new spirit in Ezekiel 18 verse 31 where he says, cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit for why should you die, O house of Israel? That's what happens when the Holy Spirit works regeneration in us. He takes out the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. Our affections change so that we now hate our sin and love God. We turn from our sin uh, and cease to do sin and learn uh, to live righteously. We cast away uh, all that sinful behavior. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 3 that uh, a tree that does not bear good fruit will be cast down and thrown into the fire. Uh, So it's not enough simply to cease to do evil, but you have to do the opposite of that and learn to live righteously. So repentance is not just uh, stopping and managing some behavior, but it's actually a change of heart, a change of affection that brings us to a point of hating sin, loving God, and wanting uh, to follow him and to live in his ways. Repentance becomes a lifestyle for Christians. If you remember what Martin Luther said uh, in the first of his 95 theses uh, that he nailed on the church door in Wittenberg, he said that uh, repentance is the life of the Christian. When, when God tells people to repent, that is something that we must do over the course of our lifetime. It's not a one-time event. It's something that we do over and over again as, as we become more and more aware of our indwelling sin and seek to put it to death. We turn away from it and turn towards God. So when someone first comes to faith, we shouldn't expect perfection out of them. What we should expect is growth over time. We should expect to see an attitude of brokenheartedness over sin, of affection towards God, and growth over time. But as C.S. Lewis reminds us in Mere Christianity, uh, that Uh, sort of sanctification, that growth in righteousness uh, is a process that happens at different speeds for different people and we all kind of start in different places, right? The the hardened criminal drug user is starting in a different place than Daniel's children are. We hope they're not hardened criminals and drug users at this point. Uh, So 
you know, we're starting in different places and, and progress at different speeds. And so we shouldn't look at someone else and say, hey, their sanctification doesn't look like what I have experienced in my own life, so therefore I don't think they're saved. We shouldn't be that quick and harsh to judge. What we need to look for is the affections of the heart uh, and are they turning away from their sin. There are two errors that, that follow here with our response and, and looking for this act of conviction and repentance in someone. Uh, the first one is uh, to think that repentance is easy uh, and that it can be fully accomplished in this life. Right? Repentance is not easy. It's hard. Uh, confessing your sin, feeling brokenhearted over your sin requires humility, uh, admission of guilt. It requires admitting that you can't save yourself, that you, you need salvation from outside yourself. And, and we shouldn't think that we can accomplish it in this life and, and become perfectly sanctified. It, if someone has that sort of a view of repentance, they have a very low view of sin. Uh, they don't recognize the sinfulness of sin. The, the second error, uh, the opposite error, is to think that repentance is too hard. That uh, perhaps, I, you know what, I've sinned too much. No way I can repent of this or God can't forgive me of this. And that error has a low view of the grace of God. We're not recognizing that Christ died for these sins. They are paid for. And if we repent and turn away from them, we can experience grace and forgiveness from him. Uh, so... Uh, we want to avoid those two errors. We want to avoid the errors of giving false assurance, and we want to avoid the errors of, error of judging too harshly because someone's sanctification is not happening at the speed that we think it should. But we want to look for this change of heart, this brokenheartedness, conviction over sin, uh, and this, this, you can almost feel the, the heart-wrenching uh, tone of voice they ask this question in, men and brethren, what shall we do? They've been cut to the heart over their sin. And Peter says to them, repent. And then when they do repent, uh, other things follow that we will look at in the coming weeks. Well, let's close in a word of prayer.